Lynch of George Washington University in the Project on Middle East Political Science. I'd like to welcome you to the fall 2021 season of the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. We're very excited about this year's podcast. We'll continue to feature uh, all the best new research and publications in the field of Middle East political science, including books and peer-reviewed journal articles. But this year, we're also going to each, each week talk to people about things that are happening in the region, whether it's political events, whether it's new partnerships, whether it's new data sets, all sorts of things which might be of broad interest to people working in the broad area of Middle East political science. For this first episode of the season, we're going to be speaking first with Mona Algobashi, New York University, and the author of the new book, Bread and Freedom, Egypt's Revolutionary Situation of Stanford University Press. We'll also hear from Killian Clark of Georgetown University about his new article, Which Protests Count? Coverage Bias in Middle East Event Datasets. And finally, we'll talk to Larissa Chomiak, the director, the director of the Center for Maghreb Studies in Tunis, to talk about recent political developments in Tunisia. Thank you so much for joining our program, and we're looking forward to a great new year. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and for this season's very first book discussion, we're joined by Mona Algabashi of NYU Liberal Studies and the author of the brand new book, Bread and Freedom, Egypt's Revolutionary Situation, which is just published by Stanford University Press. Uh, Mona, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So uh, first, I just want to say this book is terrific. Um, I didn't think that there was anything new to be said about Egypt in 2011, but this was a really eye-opening book. So I uh, really thank you for writing it. Um, that said, why don't you tell us what you were trying to do with the book and what you think the major contribution is? Thanks so much for the compliment. That's really all I want to hear from people, uh, partly because we think we know what happened in Egypt and we do know what happened in Egypt. We have the major um, headline events, 18 days in Tahrir, overthrow one of the world's uh, strongest US backed dictators. And then a bunch of stuff happens. And then uh, two years later, he's overthrown in a military, popularly supported military coup and a massive unprecedented repression um, grips Egypt to uh, this day. There's nothing wrong with that narrative. All of that is correct. It's just that there are so many intervening events and intervening actors that have been long forgotten. And what I wanted to do is at a very basic level, just figure out how many of these events were connected. Uh, so for instance, if you just think about it, if you take your memory back, and I know that many listeners will be familiar with these events. If you take your memory back to 2011, there were so many issues contending and at play Founding elections, transitional justice, the issue of lustration or what to do with ancien regime figures, the issue of economic justice and what kind of economic policy would govern Egypt after the uh, 30 year neoliberal policies that eviscerated the middle class and certainly the lower um, classes. Uh, issues of police reform, the main uh, keynote issue of Egyptian politics that started the revolution. So many of these things were jumbled together in that three-year period, but I wanted to get a sense of how they linked up because in reality, they were simultaneous and they had uh, concurrent effects. So it's not, uh, I, I've seen really good studies that look at founding elections. I've seen really good studies that look at issues of police reform or rather the catastrophic lack of police reform. That was a major um, catalyst for why what happened happened. 
but how did these things intersect? And how did the fact that they were simultaneous help us understand these very complex outcomes? One of the key things and contributions that I aspire to with this book is to give us a new picture of what happened or what we think we know what happened simply by bringing into the frame so many of the actors that have dropped out either of retrospective memory or at the time we didn't appreciate what was going on because these actors didn't seem to be so central. So just to give you an example of what I was trying to do, the standard way to approach the Egyptian uprising is to look at three collective actors the military, the Islamists, and the revolutionary youth or liberal groups. Depending on the author, they use different nomenclatures. That's not wrong. That's um, a very harrowed uh, tradition in political analysis. In fact, to get a grip on such complex events, you almost have to, by definition, reduce the number of actors. But I didn't want to do that because that leads to the same narrative over and over again, either a narrative of military deception, that the military had this totally lockdown from February 11th, and it was just a matter of time before they took over the political arena. That was their long range plan. Or the other uh, kind of um, textbook kind of a stock narrative is that the uh, civilian forces were so inept and they were so divided and couldn't manage to come up with a united front against the military. So it's a story of lack of consensus, lack of compromise. Often Tunisia is brought in as the exceptional case of the wonderful little Tunisia that could make it because their political class was so much more farsighted and so much more moderate that they were able to come together in a consensus to ward off any potential uh, old regime uh, actors and so on. So what I wanted to do, and I think where this book either succeeds or fails, is whether it provides a coherent account of the many, many actors and institutions that were not just vying during the revolutionary situation, but also their relative distribution of power between these different groups was constantly shifting. And that's one of the things which is really uh, kind of runs through the book and I think makes a real contribution is just the combination, as you just put it, of on the one hand, the sheer complexity of the situation um, with all these balls in the air at the same time and actors trying to figure out you know, what all is actually happening but also uncertainty. It just, it just runs through the, 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 one of the through lines of the book is that actors really didn't know what the real balance of power was. They didn't really know what the stakes of a particular issue were. And um, maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of the theoretical uh, part of this, you know, this idea of a revolutionary situation and the way that this uncertainty, this radical uncertainty runs through it. So I saw in almost every study that I read in both Arabic and English, everyone mentions uncertainty in passing, as if that's somehow, you know, we all know that, and it's going to be uncertain, of course, and there's going to be a lot of balls in the air, as you said. But ultimately, and this is really grounded in social science analysis, and particularly political science, ultimately, there's no real question that ultimately the military is going to triumph. That's very much part of the narrative of the way that many political scientists are trained, especially those outside the Middle East. I'm not just saying Middle East. It's like you look at the uh, initial distribution of power and then you can just sort of game it out almost like a syllogism that by the end, the most powerful actor is going to prevail. I'm trying to go against that by showing that using this concept that I recovered from uh, a bunch of sociologists, starting with not a sociologist, but an activist, Vladimir Lenin. In 1915, he coined this term, revolutionary situation. Then in the 60s and 70s, it was taken up by 
American social scientists, primarily Charles Tilly and uh, Arthur Stinchcombe, and they sort of uh, made it an analytically useful concept. What is a revolutionary situation, this radical uncertainty? First, it's a moment of both opportunity and threat. So, you know, so much is kind of obvious. But at the same time, and the light bulb moment for me was when I found this quote from Arthur Stinchcombe, in which he says, the essential attribute of a political revolution is the erratic and constant shifting distribution of power between yeah. military forces, political parties, uh, noble lineages, um, uh, social groups. He brings into the frame so many of the actors that we tend to separate in different um, disciplines. So sociologists look at revolution, political scientists use the term uh, democratic transition. They look at the military, they look at civil society. When I kind of got that frame, then I began to see things in the documentary record, primarily newspapers, which was my main source. I began to look at actors, for instance, this was a total surprise to me, the uh, civil servants, who uh, Egypt's 5.8 million civil servants, who we know already from the work of Joel Bainan and others had been engaged in an unprecedented strike wave in the Mubarak years, but they sort of drop out of the analysis of 2011 because they're not revolutionary, right? They're not, they're not the usual actors that you tend to look at. And I found myself guided by this kind of data, looking at one of SCAF's most intense worries in the six weeks after the fall of Mubarak was to make sure that there wasn't a strike within the bureaucracy, within the civil service. As administrators and as paragons of stability, they were worried about Tahrir for sure, but they were even more worried about the country coming to a standstill because of 5.8 million civil servants whose political affiliations we don't know anything about, but they could bring the state to a standstill as they did in the last two year, uh, days of the um, 18 days. So what is a revolutionary situation is if you take it seriously as I try to do and bring it from beginning to end, it is a moment where to the observer, it's very confusing who's on top and who's on the bottom, and that changes month by month. To give you another example, everybody assumes, as did I, especially with the weight of the coup behind us, now we know the outcome, everybody assumes that the military SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces that constituted itself on February 10th, were the prime power holders, and they were the most powerful actor. What I found interesting was that when you actually trace it, they went through their own shifting fortunes. There was a moment from November 2011 till March 2012, when their hold on Egypt came under severe challenge. The United States, Saudi Arabia, Egypt's own revolutionary groups, and the Islamists, for various reasons, because of this complexity of interactions, had all started to close in on SCAF and to even challenge their rule. For the first time, the Obama administration in November 2011 issued its first public criticism of the generals. As a response, the generals then rounded up the 43 NGO workers, this is the famous NGO case, and then uh, uh, a whole bunch of sh uh, uh, shuttle diplomacy ensued in which John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and a bunch of other people flew to Egypt to try to speak with the generals, including the, um, the United States Chief of Staff, the head of the Chief of Staff, Martin Dempsey, to um, negotiate with the generals to let these people go. My point is that at that moment, SCAF's hold on Egypt was looked pretty tenuous. Um, and the only way or the only thing ironically that happened to help them get back into the saddle as it were, was the presidential election campaign. And the entry of the Muslim brothers causing a political earthquake at the time 
which led many of Egypt's domestic um, political groups to rally against the Muslim Brothers for breaking their promise in getting into the elections. And SCAF used that opportunity to gain back some of the political capital that they had lost. So this is just one example of what I mean by if you take uncertainty seriously and these balls in the air, you find that with a traditional social science lens, the military looks set in its power over the duration. It doesn't matter, time doesn't matter. But in this uh, perspective, time does matter. And it was very surprising to me to see them um, so encircled, as it were. Much more contingency than you get from reading things backward from the out, you know, from the outcome. Um, one other part of what you're saying, I think, is really important, is as you know, really getting serious about the multiplicity of the actors. Because people talk about the military, but one thing which becomes really clear in your narrative is the importance of the police and of the courts, the judiciary, who are extremely important actors in your story. And yet, in that kind of military revolutionaries Muslim Brotherhood, they just disappear. So the, that's the uh, thing that I kind of knew at the outset, but it became clear to me in the uh, course of the research. Anybody who was watching Egypt at a very close level, as I know you were and many others were on a day-to-day -day level, we knew that the uh, police or the remnants of the police, the reason why we see an expansion in military, uh, in the military in Egyptian society, especially taking on policing functions was that the police were defeated by the people in the 18 days. This is a known story. What's not known is what are the effects of that? The effects of that are one, you start to get public calls, not for the first time in Egyptian history, but certainly for the first time at an insistent public level of police reform and placing a civilian as interior minister, as chief of police. In Egyptian history and in any police state, the demand to have a civilian interior minister is as revolutionary as the demand to have a civilian minister of defense. So um, unfortunately, this is actually one of the many, many threads that I wasn't able to get into in sufficient depth but there was a real push in 2011 to appoint a civilian minister of interior and that freaked out the police hierarchy. In fact, that was in uh, the kind of complex uh, causation. That was one of the ways in which the police hierarchy quickly reconsolidated itself because of the threat that they might be governed by an outsider due to enormous popular pressure. The judiciary. There are at least three different judicial actors that take on um, decisive roles in Egypt's revolution. The first and most known is the uh, Supreme Constitutional Court with its decision to dissolve the first popularly elected parliament under universal suffrage in June 2012. What's even more interesting for me is how that, that did not generate massive public outrage in Egypt. At that point, there was such disillusionment with the parliament and the fact that it was uh, dominated by Islamists. Uh, we can talk a bit later about why it's not uh, accurate, nor is it um, any more coherent to talk about Islamists as a single bloc. Mm -hmm. The Muslim Brothers and the Salafis were rivals, and it makes no sense to put them together in the same basket as people routinely do when you do this kind of actor-based Islamists, etc. So there's the um, Supreme uh, Constitutional Court and its role uh, and its claim to have constituent power to be the ultimate uh, interpreter, not just of the constitution, but in the constituent process. They were literally saying that we are above parliament. This parliament thing, that's okay, whatever. Uh, we are the ones who have a almost historic right to it, um, interpret the constitution. The other major courts, and this is something that I've been working on for many, many years, and I hope to be able to finally get down into it, 
the administrative courts. Mm -hmm. The administrative courts, Egypt's administrative courts, like the French system, actually take on extraordinary political roles. In the chapter that I have on the Mubarak years, I get a little bit into why we even have these things, why they're important in politics. The idea that you can sue a government official, any government official, up to and including the president of the republic and the Coptic Pope and the Sheikh al-Azhar, um, that has had enormous consequences in Egyptian politics because of uh, citizens' legal mobilization. So the administrative courts also play a role. And then last but not least, the ordinary court system, the criminal court system, which under popular pressure tried Hosni Mubarak, his top commanders, police commanders, and his two sons. Um, that was a saga that extended all the way up to, I think, 2017, when Mubarak was finally exonerated of all charges. And that drama, like what did that, what, what was that all about? Why was the public demanding that Mubarak be tried? And most importantly, why were they demanding that he be tried in an ordinary criminal court and not an exceptional court? And then you see how these things interact with each other uh, coming out in your narrative. So for example, once it became clear, as you argue, uh, once it became clear that the Supreme Constitutional Court would be a veto player, um, then that meant that the, the, you know, the liberal and secular activists against the Muslim Brotherhood had no incentive to compromise anymore because now they had this extra political actor to take their side. And again, that's the sort of complexity that is easy to lose in these more linear types of analysis. If I could just elaborate up on that point because it's really important and I articulated in the conclusion. One of the things I learned throughout the research was that I also accepted the idea that the Muslim Brothers were the dominating party and everybody else was so alienated by the Muslim Brothers that they just kind of exited out of any sense of compromise. Well, there's another layer to the story that's really important. The reason why the liberal slash leftist forces uh, found it expedient not to engage in compromise with the Muslim Brothers. The first reason is definitely because of the Muslim Brothers' um, idea that these people, the Muslim Brothers were so powerful that they actually didn't need to talk to these uh, people. And the idea of the, of the Muslim Brothers was that why do we even need to listen to you? You constantly are rejecting us. You're calling us um, you know, Muslim dictators. Every time we try to extend our hand to you, you turn away. So we're just gonna ignore you. But here's the thing, these liberal secular forces, which on the ground in terms of votes were negligible, they found a very powerful ally in this state institution, the administrative courts and the Supreme Constitutional Court. And they consistently uh, uh, petitioned the courts. They basically sued Morsi and the Islamists and the parliament, et cetera, et cetera, and led to um, these elected institutions being shut down by court order. But the courts can't act on their own. They need citizens to actually compel them to action by filing lawsuits. So it was this tacit alliance between the judges and the secular slash liberal slash leftist groups that led to a very powerful counterweight to the rise of the electoral uh, power of the Muslim Brothers. It's a battle of institutions and uh, personalities. A battle of institutions and personalities. That's exactly right. And not just a battle of political parties and the military. You have to take into account state institutions, whether it's the judiciary or the humble clerks who by collective action were almost going to paralyze the Egyptian state in the first six weeks after Mubarak's fall. So one of the most interesting chapters in the book, and I think one which uh, probably pushes back the hardest on conventional wisdom is when you're talking about uh, Morsi's year in the presidency, Mohamed al-Morsi. Um, and so, 
walk us through that a little bit and why you think the uh, traditional story about uh, Morsi as kind of a dictator grabbing power and pushing everyone away, bringing on his own overthrow, why you think that's not quite right? So that was one of the few uh, chapters where I began with already a kind of a set thesis, um, partly because we lived through these moments. We lived through Morsi's year in power, the extraordinary contention and opposition that was generated to his rule. Uh, let me start with the conventional wisdom, which continues to hold sway in books that keep coming out that say two things. We're encouraged to think of the Morsi year in two ways. One, that he was a dictator, and this uh, feeds into or comes from his very controversial executive decree of November 22nd, mm. 2012, in which he, it was uh, uh, labeled as a power grab. But what he did there was just, he, it was a temporary measure to make sure that the courts did not dissolve both his own office, that of the presidency and the constituent assembly and constitution writing. So that's the reason why people call him a dictator. The other, um, and uh, the claim that he was non-inclusive that uh, he just ruled and it was just the Muslim brothers in power for that whole year. The other claim is that he was a Supreme Guide. That, that's right, exactly. He was a prop for the Supreme Guide um, and, and, and a, a, not a particularly bright um, front for his real political organization, the power behind the throne. Uh, the other claim is that he's inept. He was just a totally inept leader. Um, to this day, I'm still puzzled by what that ineptness means. Here's where, why I already had a stance against these two conventional points of view. I saw Morsi in the frame of a first time executive entering, not just a first time civilian executive, but the first political party leader president in Egypt's history. Egypt, like many, many places has always had presidents that come, people always say from the military for sure, but the broader significance of that is that they come from the state elite, a state elite that sees itself as beyond partisanship and that's non-political. Many people were disturbed by the idea that you'd have a, an Islamist president, but beyond the Islamist thing that you have a partisan president. Mm -hmm. And one of the main claims against Morsi was that he was, a he was not a president for all Egyptians. So I, I came in with this idea that something is up with this narrative. I can't quite, uh, this man who yes, had political experience as uh, the leader of the Muslim brothers in the 20, uh, 2000 parliament, um, but that he was somehow this power grabbing Islamist dictator. I might also add as a footnote that this is too easy of a narrative that plays into the very long discourse, both within US policy circles, within Israeli policy circles and within Egyptian political uh, debate that the Islamists are gonna take over. I mean, this was said at the very, this was said way before there, a revolution was even on the horizon. For the longest time since 1995, the conventional wisdom about Egypt is that if Mubarak falls, the Islamists will take over and turn Egypt into another Iran. So what I did was I just took the events in chronology in Muslim in uh, Morsi's uh, year in office. I did that throughout the book. It's by the way I should just add, and this is a hat tip to all historians who probably are rolling their eyes right now. But it was stunning to me how just looking at events in sequence clarifies so much or at the very least leads to very different kinds of questions mm -hmm. than the kinds of preconceived ideas we come with. Well, of course, it's gonna be a, a Muslim president is gonna be, an Islamist president is gonna be a dictator. I, in that chapter, I took as the foundational premise that Morsi was a very weak, isolated president with no political cap capital. Why did I, why is that a, the, the foundational premise? 
because let's remember what the second round of the presidential elections brought. Morsi won by the skin of an onion, 51% of the popular vote compared to Ahmed Shafiq's 48%. This is stunning. Ahmed Shafiq was the maligned prime minister, Mubarak's last prime minister, the key, one of the key figures of the Fulul or the old regime, made a comeback 18 months after his ouster by SCAF and got 48% of the vote. The turnout was, yes, not, not as great, 51% turnout of uh, the population, but still. Um, why was Morsi already so without um, popular support as he entered office? And then I just took through the ways in which the struggle over his authority and the attempt to undermine him began literally from the first weeks of office and not just by the state elite. SCAF was actually quite taken a back seat for the first few months. It was the civilian forces. And the moment, one of the moments that um, I do think that people do remember was his August 12th decree, rearranging SCAF, appointing Abdel Fattah Sisi as defense minister and removing or retiring the top two members of SCAF, Tantawi and Sami Anand. And taking it from there, just looking at the unfolding of the uh, political conflict. I should add here for those who are interested, I have to give a shout out to a highly inspiring uh, text that literally I used it as my textbook for writing that very difficult chapter. And this is Arturo Valenzuela's description of the Chile political crisis. This came out in 1978. Um, it was about the uh, crisis of Allende, the first Marxist president in the Western hemisphere and what happened in his first or only three years of his term that ultimately culminated in the military coup that Pinochet had. I say this because- It's a radical reframing of, of what was going on. I mean, this, this is where, and I, you know, I wasn't the only person, by the way, to make that kind of allusion to Pinochet. And from the allusion to Pinochet, I made a few other gestures to first-time executives. Mohamed Mossadegh from 1951 to 1953, the Venezuelan uh, Betancourt, who spent nine months in office before the first elected president of Venezuela before he was ousted by the military, um, and a few other gestures to first-time executives. The moment, minute you put it in that rival frame, not so much as the Islamists and this and that, this very Egypt-centric and Egypt-claustrophobic story, it just, so many other things emerged to the point where, and this is for those out there, graduate students and others who might be interested, to the point where I had a very chilling moment when I was reading Valenzuela's chapters because some of the language in the polemical war against Allende mirrored exactly what was being said about Mohamed Morsi. So all I'm saying, and I want readers to grapple with this, is I'm not making a one-to-one -one correspondence right. between Allende in 1970, who had three years to implement very disruptive policies to those who held power and wealth. I'm just saying that you have to look at this as a problem, not of an Islamist who's ready to take over the state, this kind of long-time propaganda uh, tool of the Egyptian Republican regime. I'm saying you have to look at it as a very precarious executive who deals with a bunch of cascading and mounting problems that ultimately lead to to the very last day mark, if you remember, even on June 30th, when there were the mass protests against Morsi's rule, it was not clear even then what was going to happen. I remember those days like they were yesterday, and all of us were just very confused. Is this going to be a military coup? Is this just going to be at another huge rally? By that point, June 30th, 2013, there were mass protests against Morsi almost every week. 
So Morsi and his team themselves didn't take them seriously, not because they were myopic or idiotic, but because this was happening almost weekly. And this, this idea of Morsi as, a, as kind of a weak, threatened president, um, you know, you look around and he had to deal with an economic crisis that wasn't, you know, getting any better. Um, he didn't have command over the state. Uh, he couldn't really control the police or the, the media or pretty much anything. Um, and then you have the coalition of uh, the National uh, the, what, the, uh, Salvation Front, the National Salvation Front um, coalescing very early in his term and basically calling for him to step down almost you know, within months of his thing. You also had the cascading violence, uh, which, which is maybe worth uh, a mention as well, that it wasn't just you know, rhetoric, but you had Muslim Brotherhood offices being burned down. You had the violent clashes at, at the Hadiya. Um, so there's a lot going on there that, that generated not just like uncertainty as in I'm not quite sure what's gonna happen, but like profound radical uncertainty about existence. You know, the, the issue about violence, I should say, which I highlight in that chapter, I got that idea from Juan Linz's 1978 classic breakdown of democratic regimes, because he uh, constantly points to the fact that the key problem for every incoming new regime, democratic or not, is to maintain order. And one of the things that constantly uh, was part of the drama of Egypt's revolutionary situation was violence on the streets of multiple forms. But when it came to the tenure of the first um, civilian president, the police were completely out of his control. So the police were strategically absent from the streets all the time, but at the very same time, they would use massive force against certain protests. And so that led to many, many people, including Morsi's erstwhile allies, to blame him because ultimately he was in a position of responsibility, right? They would blame him for the violence, but he literally had no control. I mean. People forget, but um, and I think this comes out in Neil Ketchley's, one of his chapters in his book on uh, Morsi and those last, the police were actually calling for people to come out into the streets on June 30th. They were inviting them for weeks and weeks after. The leader of the presidential guard, himself a military man who now is Egypt's defense minister, he was inviting people to come to the street and basically protest against Morsi. So, this situation, aside from all of the other challenges that you point out, the other thing that I want to remind folks of is the National Salvation Front, Morsi's political opposition. Who were the leaders of the National Salvation Front? Two losing presidential candidates, Amr Musa and Hamdin Sabahi, and Mohammed al-Baradri, who had refused to enter any of Egypt's um, elections. So we kind of looked at them at the time, people looked at them as viable, real oppositions to Morsi, and they were. But we also cannot lose sight of the fact that these two men on this uh, leading of this opposition felt that they should be president. And so they had a vested interest in, they thought that the military would step in in a surgical maneuver, remove Morsi, and then there would be elections and one of them would get elected. I, I mean, you know, just showing all of these dynamics, um, to me, I just hope I'm not out to proselytize or convince anyone, but I just want people to see it in a, in a different light than the calcified way that we are now. It's, it's like a done deal. Morsi was a dictator. Let's move on. There's so much more that we could talk about. Uh, there's an entire, uh, several chapters in the book about the, the 
Sisi's uh, uh, reconstitution of authoritarianism and the very new ways in which he exercises power. There's a rich description uh, and discussion of the pre-revolutionary uh, Egyptian society. Um, but uh, we're, I'm afraid we're out of time. So people are just gonna have to read the book in order to, uh, in order to explore those ideas. Mona, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a great discussion. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Killian Clark of Georgetown University. The author, new article, Which Protests Count? Coverage Bias in Middle East Event Datasets, uh, just published in Mediterranean Politics. Uh, Killian, thanks for joining us. Uh, happy to be here, Mark. So tell us about this article. What were you trying to do? Yeah, so um, so this article uh, emerged out of research that I did um, as part of my dissertation at Princeton. Um, and what I was doing here was uh, examining uh, protest data in the Middle East. Um, so a little bit of background. So after the Arab Spring in 2011, um, you know, there was obviously a massive outburst of mobilization and protest in the Middle East. A lot of scholars who work on the region started um, studying these protests using um, what we call protest data sets or event data sets. Basically these data sets um, are, are inventories um, or records of um, all of the different sort of protests or contentious events that take place in a given time and place. Uh, and the idea is to collect this sort of this catalog, this inventory, and then to analyze that data to study patterns and, and, and dynamics in mobilization and protest. So lots of people started collecting um, these types of data. And one of the arguments that um, folks who study the region were making was that we really needed to use local sources to collect these data. So typically what you do when you, when you build these data sets is you, is you read a bunch of newspaper articles to, um, to find out where and when protests are taking place. Um, but of course, which, which newspapers you read and which articles you read matters a lot because different types of newspapers are going to cover these protests in different ways. Um, and so Middle East studies scholars argued that you really need to look at local Arabic language newspapers in order to, to do this properly. Um, the argument being that um, these, these, these sources were gonna provide much more comprehensive and less biased coverage of these events. Um, and so I, as part of my dissertation, built one of these protest data sets um, on Egypt, uh, specifically on the post-revolutionary period in Egypt, uh, going from, from January 2012 to July 2013, um, when the transition was cut short by a military coup. And so the article was, was essentially designed to evaluate this, this kind of implicit claim that we had all been making that these local sources were providing better coverage of these protest dynamics um, than other alternative sources that are out there. Um, and so what I did in the article is I, I took my protest data set, what I, which I had built based on a single uh, uh, daily um, national newspaper in Egypt called the Masri Yom. Um, and I compared that data set, um, first of all, to a, uh, a, a collection of um, what I call in the article off-the-shelf data sets. These are basically existing protest data sets that other scholars have compiled. They cover lots of different countries. Um, they're off-the-shelf because they're sort of there as a resource for scholars, and many scholars do pull on these data sets and doing their research. Um, the issue with these data sets though is they're based um, either on, on English language sources or primarily English language sources or they're based on wire services. Um, so international wires like the, the AP and the AFP. Um, and so the first thing I did was I was comparing my locally sourced data set to these, these off the shelf data sets. And then the second thing I do in the article is I say, okay, well, I used one local source. Um, what happens when we compare my 
sort of single source data set to um, uh, uh, different local data sets that use a broader set of sources. So then I was sort of looking for bias in my own data set um, and how much my use of a single national source was able to improve the coverage bias um, over the, the English language sources. So sort of looking in two different directions in that sense, first to these off the shelf data sets and then to a pair of local data sets that have been built by activists in Egypt, which use a broader range of local sources. And one of the one of the ideas here then is that if these data sets are you know fundamentally missing certain types of data or reporting things um, in such a way, it can really skew the results of research. Yeah, that's exactly right. So so you know what the methodological literature on protest data says is that uh, coverage gaps are not in and of themselves a problem if. Um, the coverage gaps are sort of representative. So what do I mean by that? So let's say you, you, you have a sort of a thousand protests taking place, but the newspaper you're reading only identifies a hundred of them. That doesn't really matter as long as those hundred protests that it identifies are representative of that full sample. Right. The problem is that typically these coverage bias, these coverage gaps are not unbiased, right? They typically, uh, these international newspapers typically cover more protests of a certain type, right? And so that's one of the things I get into in the article a little bit. Yeah, so you show, I think, kind of unsurprisingly, that the big data sets, they do undercount, but also that there are these types of biases, and you lay out at least five different types of biases. Why don't you walk us through those a little bit, and how we, how you see each one of them manifesting? Sure, yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, so I talk about five different types of bias. Um, you know, there are other types I could have looked at, but these are I was guided here by the methodological literature and what, what people have found in, in looking at protest data in other places. Um, so the first type of bias is geographic bias, right? So, so typically these um, international and English language sources tend to focus more on protests in cities and especially in capital cities, right? So, so Egypt is a, is, a, is a country with one big main metropole, the, the, the city of Cairo. And so, um, you know, kind of unsurprisingly, I found that these English language data sets have a lot more protests that take place in Cairo um, proportionally than my data set did. Um, right, so that that gives us a particular picture of what things look like in a country. Right, if all of the protests taking place are in this, you know, in the, uh, captured or in a city or in the main capital city, um, we're going to be missing a lot of what was happening in other smaller cities around the country, which, mm -hmm. in fact, is is a, a problem with some of the literature on the Arab Spring. And 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 folks like Jillian Schwedler and others have written about this that other cities that were that were mobilizing during the 18 days and afterwards were not covered as much. And we don't know as much about what happened in these second tier cities. Um, and so, you know, using data sets that are biased in this way can really um, uh, contribute to those sorts of omissions in our in our knowledge and our scholarship. To say nothing of the rural bias. Of course, right, exactly, yeah. Um, so, so just to throw out some numbers here. So I look, for example, at urban-rural uh, split in protests in these data sets. So my data set, which used Masriyom, captured uh, 24% of the events were rural. Um, in ACLED, which is one of the data sets that I look at, 4% um, uh, of their events were rural. And in SCAD, which is the second off-the-shelf data set I look at, 14% um, of their events were rural, right? So that just gives you a sense of, you know, we're, we're missing a lot of rural events there um, in using these other data sets. Okay, then what about the next type? Yeah, so then the next type is the size of the protests. Um, so small protests don't get captured as much. Um, again, not super surprising that the big events would, would tend to be captured more by these um, English language sources. The other thing, though, that I found that was sort of interesting is that these off-the-shelf data sets have a, a, a larger proportion of events where the size um, is not known. 
So we have events with an unknown size, right? And, and um, so for example, um, uh, I think in my data set, it was about 25% of events were uh, of unknown size. And in SCAD, it was up, it was 35%. Um, so again, that creates a problem when we're trying to understand um, levels of mobilization uh, uh, captured by turnout rather than by the number of events, right? If we don't know the number of people who participate, we can't talk about turnout. Now, one that was really interesting was uh, different event types and different types of protests being captured asymmetrically. Yeah, so that's so. So there's well, there's two different ways. We, yeah, we can think about that. So one is tactics, the the, the tactics uh, of, of protesters. So riots, uh, violent uh, riots, tend to be overcounted in these off-the-shelf data sets. Um, and then the second way we can think about protest types is um, by demands. Um, so I have sort of a demand variable in my data set and SCAD does as well. Um, and so I was able to compare the, the types of demands that are being captured in these data sets. SCAD captures far more events airing political demands than my data set did. Um, so I have a higher proportion of events uh, uh, in which protesters are raising demands about uh, social issues, uh, labor, socioeconomic uh, grievances, and, and SCAD really isn't capturing a lot of those types of events. And given the importance of labor protest and workplace types of, uh, of challenges across the region, both in 2011 and all the way to the present day, that seems like a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's, again, I mean, it sort of really colors our understanding of these dynamics. I mean, the way that the Arab Spring was reported on, the, the political grievances of the protesters were uh, put front and center. Um, whereas in fact, a lot of the grievances that were motivating people to come out um, were, were not really to do with politics, they were to do with everyday living conditions, they were to do with police violence, they were to do with a lack of labor rights, um, they were to do with social service uh, shortfalls. And, and if we miss these types of protests, then we're gonna have a really biased perspective on what was really driving these sorts of things. And then you also look at the importance of violence in drawing attention from the wires. Yeah, so then the final, yeah, the final uh, category was repression. Um, and again, they're, you know, not surprising, I guess, but, but the, the inter international uh, wires and the off-the-shelf data sets capture a, a far higher proportion of events that are repressed. I think that, so the proportion was 29% in, in SCAD versus 12% in my data set. So again, we're getting a, a, a picture of these, of these, of these uh, movements that are much more violent than they actually were. So then let's talk about the implications of this for our field and for the, for the study of, um, of protest mobilization and dynamics in the region. Um, what do you take away from all of this in terms of the reliance on different types of data sets? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I try to be um, measured in my conclusions because I really didn't want this article to come across as a sort of you know, an exercise bashing these these off-the-shelf data sets. I mean, these data sets are really valuable in some respects, and, I, and I've used them in my in my own research. Um, I think they're especially valuable when we're doing um, uh, longitudinal studies, so looking at protest dynamics over a very long period of time, you know, multiple years. And they're also valuable when we're doing comparative research because they have protest data from multiple cases that we can compare um, using the same set of sources. But I think when we're doing subnational studies, when we're really trying to understand these sort of meso and micro level dynamics in a given case, when we're trying to get a get a get an understanding of, of what a movement looked like looks like, what's motivating it, how the state is responding, uh, I, I really think that that these these data sets are going to uh, be giving us a biased picture of things, and and we need to be doing the hard work of of building our own data sets based on local sources. Um, so that's kind of where I come out at the end of the article. Um, I have a couple other analyses in, in the final section where I actually show that 
using regressions uh, on the two different data sets, we actually reach different answers when when we when we ask the same question of the two data sets. Yeah. So give it give us an example or two of that. Yeah. So so I look at repression, right? So one of the things we can do with protest data is we can say. Um, given the characteristics of, of, of a protest event, what's the likelihood that it's going to be repressed by the state? And so I basically run a very simple analysis on my data set and on the SCAD data set, um, you know, modeling the, the kind of characteristics that, that are likely to uh, lead to repression. Um, and I kind of really different answers. So in the, in the SCAD data, the finding is that um, urban events um, are more likely to be repressed, but events in Cairo are less likely to be repressed. Mm -hmm. So basically urban events outside of Cairo are more likely to be repressed. Um, when I run the same analysis in my data, I find that there's no relationship with urban events and actually events in Cairo um, have, a, have a higher likelihood of being repressed. Seems like a pretty significant difference. So it's basically the opposite conclusion, exactly. Yeah, um, and and you know, so this is, and then I, I I go through and I don't replicate any studies because I don't have data outside of Egypt, but I talk about some other published work that's that's been released recently that uses these off-the-shelf data sets and and talk about how you know we should be asking really serious questions about their findings based on what we know about the biases. Now, one thing which is, you don't make a big deal of this in the article, but I find kind of very interesting for us to think about as a field is that one of the things that made this article possible is that you were able to draw on these locally produced, locally sourced data sets that other scholars had uh, generated. And that strikes me as something which could be very useful in the field more broadly, because obviously we don't all have the capabilities to go out and do this labor intensive data set building in multiple countries. So maybe as one final thing, maybe you could talk about how this could fit together within the broader field of Middle East political science. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Mark. I mean, these data sets take a lot of time and they're very resource intensive. And I was extremely grateful and that I, you know, I was able to get a grant to help me build the data set. I hired five RAs to do it. But this is not the type of labor that, that everyone can do and, 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 nor, and nor should they have to. And so, um, yeah, for, for, for the article, I, I, I was able to reach out to some colleagues of mine who'd done similar research and they were generously uh, willing to share their data sets uh, in other countries with me. So I could actually talk about how some of these biases exist in other parts of the world or other parts of the Middle East. Um, and I think my hope is that this type of data sharing in, in, with these event data sets will become more, more um, common and, and, and normalized because I do think we should be sharing these data. I think um, that they're a resource for the field, not just for the scholars who produce them. Um, and what I think has happened since 2011, as we've all been working on these data sets, is we've kind of been converging towards a set of, of shared best practices in building protest data, which I think is really, so a lot of these data sets actually look pretty similar. And so that actually is really exciting because it means we can start to bring them together and use them in an integrative way um, in, in collective and collaborative research projects. Um, so that's something that I've started to do with some other, um, uh, in some other cases with, with Rima Majid and Chantal Berman. We're starting to collect some data on Iraq and Lebanon that we're hoping to use in future projects, very much building on the work that the three of us have done in our, in our dissertation research. So my hope is that we're kind of moving in that direction of making this much more of a sort of a shared uh, collaborative enterprise with, with, with scholars throughout um, the discipline. Well, great, really, really important, really interesting research. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Killian. It's been a pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. 
This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and in our topic segment this week, we're joined by Larissa Chomiak, the director of the Center for Maghreb Studies in Tunis. Uh, Larissa, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having so, me. Let's talk about uh, the recent events uh, this summer in Tunisia and, and kind of what you as a political scientist who's deeply immersed in, in the debates of the day in Tunis, you know, what do you make of what's been happening? So I'm going to start with a little bit of background um, on what happened on July 25th um, this past summer when President uh, Kai Said invoked Article 80 of Tunisia's constitution. Um, the article allowed him to declare a state of imminent danger, and he used that uh, legal framework to dismiss the prime minister, um, Hisham Mishishi, freeze parliament, and lift the immunity of elected deputies. Um, he also declared himself attorney general. So um, what was really surprising at that moment um, was the overwhelming popular support for these decisions. Um, a decision that was, of course, vocally protested by elected political parties, um, especially the largest party in Nahda. Um, so the article, Article 80 of the Constitution stipulates a specific timeline of 30 days, after which a constitutional court or the constitutional court um, is to rule on its uh, termination or prolongation. But Tunisia never set up um, a constitutional court, which was supposed to happen in 2014. Um, and Kaya Syed has since prolonged the state of imminent danger um, indefinitely. So that's the situation that we're in right now. Um, and this, of course, has raised the concerns by many, pointing to a comparison to previous authoritarian tactics, um, not just in Tunisia, but also um, comparatively. Um, just yesterday, a Tunisian polling firm, uh, Emrat, uh, registered that 81% of Tunisians are favorably or partially favorable to the continued freeze of parliamentary activities. And when asked about the future of the country, 55% of respondents are worried or partially worried about the future of the country, um, whereas 41% of the population um, is not worried. Um, so the way I've been kind of uh, following the situation is looking at how this, how the, the large divisions on this issue, which go far beyond a pro or anti-Kaisai uh, debate. Um, and this, of course, within the context of um, us not knowing what's going to happen and, and, and watching and analyzing and, um, and, and debating. What we do know is um, that July 25th happened at a time of complicated, and I like to think of it as kind of multi-scalar crisis. There was the pandemic management and the pandemic's effect on longstanding socioeconomic pressures, unemployment, especially among young Tunisians, um, uh, stagnating salaries against a devaluated currency. The Tunisian, the Tunisian dinar was devaluated by um, over 60% since 2011. Um, a massive rising cost of living, which affected things like basic foodstuffs, gasoline, utilities, and so on. Um, and that all occurred within a political context of a paralyzed parliament and an all-time low um, trust in government, which re registered at about 15% earlier this spring. Um, and the other way, uh, the other way that I've been kind of um, looking at the situation is at this initial mix of both euphoria and fear that has been very difficult to take apart or to detangle. Um, while there is large scale support uh, for Kaya Syed, that support is there for multiple and completely different reasons. And the same thing is true for fear. 
um, those who experienced repression and exclusion under Ben Ali and Bourguiba regimes, such as the former oppositional parties that then were able to participate in the democratic process since 2011, are of course recognizing authoritarian tactics. Um, and then others, so some of the moves, uh, recent moves around basic foodstuff reductions, tackling corruption, house arrests, and travel interdictions are viewed as populist measures to maintain or shore up uh, support for what is going to come. Um, and then, of course, there's a significant segment which is frustrated with the former system and what democracy has brought. Um, but a lot of that kind of segment is taking a very cautious wait and see approach. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it came as a huge shock to uh, political scientists and to observers uh, in the West who saw Tunisia as a successful transition to democracy and see this as, uh, as basically a failure of that transition. But uh, from where you're sitting and how Tunisians are observing things, it doesn't look quite that way. So, um... Of course, with the fall of Ben Ali in 2011 and the onset of the political transition in Tunisia, there was an immediate interest, um, um, not just by Anglophone political scientists, but by the entire kind of uh, democracy, global democracy community, community in understanding um, the process itself and democratization, which makes sense. Um, the thing, and the thing that's been kind of surprising, I think, over the last 10 years is how political scientists have limited their definition and their approach to democracy. So broadly speaking as procedural minimalist and focused on elections. Um, I am, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here and um, I don't mean to, to kind of lump the entire post 2011 political science literature um, into this category because it's vast and it's, uh, but there's a kind of dominant trend in political science, including comparative politics by non Middle East and North Africa, uh, regional specialists um, that overlaps this kind of minimalist approach with public policy work. So I think that um, what happened on July 25th has received the kind of reaction by political scientists that we have seen because of its attack, if you will, on how representative democracy has been studied and approached normatively. Um, the freezing of parliament and dismissal of the prime minister and government put a huge question mark on the future of that kind of democracy. But here is what I think um, we maybe have been missed, or perhaps it's just not interesting um, to those who are mainly committed to a, a liberal democratic approach, that the decisions of July 25th did not come out of nowhere. Um, the context kind of that I want to push for is beyond the institutions of parliament, the body of political parties, um, or the kind of economic, reductionist plus pandemic stress altogether put as the context under which is ha is, uh, uh, the events happen. Um, of course, all of these things are critical in explaining why there was so much popular support. But in terms of context, I want to make a case for thinking beyond the kind of development world socioeconomic conditions or uh, focusing on low trust in democratic institutions, especially parliament. In other words, if we take the, the question under which political conditions um, did all of this become possible? I'm thinking of the profound public disappointment with the many post-revolutionary governments, the frequent changes in government, the disdain for massive parliamentary infighting, not knowing where the kind of separation of power lies, the real lived effects of currency devaluation, marginalization, hopelessness, frustration, the real everyday struggles that Tunisians have been living with, navigating, um, and also desperately trying to survive. Um, and that, in addition to thousands of annual protests, 
rise of powerful social movements, increase in daily contention. This is the kind of, this is the environment um, that includes both the structural and emotional conditions in which July 25th occurred. Um, so these, these are the kind of, these are the daily struggles that are circulating on social media, um, are the topics of traditional media, of talk shows, um, of everyday conversations and so on, and have become a kind of political routine, um, which is something that um, Jillian Schwedler theorizes in her new book on protests in Jordan, how a meaningful attention to routine protests and practices are largely left out in political science work when they are in fact the conditions under which something like July 25th can occur. Um, and also explain why uh, why it did occur, not just why it did occur, but also enjoyed the kind of overwhelming support um, that is that it continues to have until this day. Now, I think anyone who had been studying Tunisia and uh, you know following the course of its politics understood that there was this uh, very strong undercurrent of alienation from the political system and uh, you know all of the problems that youth in particular were encountering that you described. And yet, I think many people just didn't see this kind of extra institutional uh, political move coming. And so what do you think about that disconnect between the way even people following it closely who understood the context, um, but still didn't quite get that this was going to happen? This idea that there's only one way to think about democracy, and that is the minimalist and uh, procedural approach uh, versus a thicker notion versus an interpretive, interpretive and practice focused approach. Um, and here, of course, I'm thinking of Lisa Wedin's um, eloquent 2004 essay in which she brings uh, different communities of scholarship on democracy into conversation with one another. So thinking outside of the dominant approach that links democracy with economic development so we can hypothesize about regime type formulas. So a semi-democracy, a weak democracy, a transition to democracy, a reversal of democracy and so on. And by studying, engaging with, and even considering how Tunisians themselves are thinking about democracy. That is beyond surveys, which of course do capture these pertinent moments, but should not be viewed as the exclusive kind of capture of how citizens are feeling about this moment, and including desires for equality, equity, dignity, and fair distribution, the possibilities for life improvements, and the kind of critiques and fears of a system, and here I'm talking about the last 10 years, that seems to not be working, I think matter in extraordinary ways to understand why there is this kind of difference um, and pushing for different kind of arguments. So it's not necessarily um, a, a misunderstanding or disconnect. It's two completely different approaches to try to capture um, uh, what is going on. And um, I think in this kind of thicker interpretive practice oriented approach that includes politics of uh, as routine, it's within this kind of context that an insistence on the procedure or elections is just insufficient. Um, and at the same, and, and of course, it's incredibly difficult to convince a citizen of why they should continue being committed and supportive of that kind of democracy when most can barely make ends meet and have very little chance to rectify this kind of situation. So the expectations from uh, the expectations from democracy differ vastly, not just among Tunisians, but also between how Tunisia is written about. Mm -hmm. um, the kind of prescriptive angle of how things should be and what Tunisians should care for is starkly clashing with the anger, frustration, and hopelessness lived, talked about, and suffered daily. Um, and I just uh, want to perhaps end on a final thought here. Um, so the concern is not 
which side of arguments or uh, political, which side of the argument we're on um, or political or which political kind of leaning we're prescribing to, but rather attempting to taking the entirety of the context, not just a moment, but something like a short durée of the last 10 years of democracy building, mm -hmm. if not the last three years, um, how and why and uh, how and why and again, under what specific moment Kai Sai became president, which was by a landslide victory of over 70%. Um, and taking this kind of shorter, uh, not, not thinking of 10 years as a long durée, but as a short period yeah. and putting that um, into the long durée of popular exp expectations of what a state ought to do. Um, and thinking about these two different moments or kind of timelines um, when we're trying to consider something that is as complex as uh, July 25th. And so from that perspective, it's not that uh, Kais Saeed has interrupted a thriving democratic uh, system, but rather that from the perspective of many Tunisians, this was a failing system and it wasn't democracy at all. And uh, so then you get into these arguments about Saeed and his supporters suggesting that they're restoring democracy rather than breaking it. That's right. So um, the, and again, the, the, the frustration with the, um, the democratization experience, the last, the democratization experience of the last 10 years is not one of pro-democracy or not democracy or pro-parliamentary democracy or a different kind of system. The frustration is with the multiple governments management of it, which of course fell, um, the critique of course fell on those who had been um, elected to power. But um, I don't want to say that Kai Said has put a kind of stop button on the process or whether he is hitting the restart button. Mm -hmm. um, because we don't know yet. Because one, because we don't know yet. Um, but two, um, I do think that we have to put the expectations of citizens into conversation with the expectations of a broader democracy community. Um, and perhaps rather than having these kind of, this divisiveness that we've been living for the last six weeks, I think that this moment as at least from a scholarly perspective is to be in conversation with one another um, to understand why this, you know, why this moment occurred at that specific um, at, the, at that specific moment. Um, and I think that so, perhaps- so one, one, one thing which is actually might be a good way to, to wrap up would be to ask you um, what is both a kind of a hypothetical question, but also probably a very practical one for you, which is suppose that you are a, a graduate student in Tunisia right now, or planning to go to Tunisia to study democracy and, and all the sorts of things that political scientists study. Uh, it sounds like you have some pretty interesting ideas then about what you should be doing right now and where you should be directing your analytical focus. So, um, and this is related to studying this moment, but also the kind of context that we've been in um, in the last uh, year and a half with travel, not being able to travel and so on. The debates that are happening, so I, the, the, the debates that are happening on social media um, versus the debates that are happening among individuals here versus the debates that are happening in say DC or Brussels uh, um, or among the democracy promotion community seem to be completely different kind of spaces of where different conversations are happening. And I think that um, as political scientists, we ought to consider all of these 
different debates and not kind of single out one and kind of push, have a normative commitment to one because the commitment, our commitment is about understanding what's going on and explaining what's going on and perhaps, you know, um, theorizing um, around what's going on rather than kind of uh, pushing and, and um, uh, foreclosing the possibility to gain extraordinary knowledge from one of the kind of other spaces where these discussions are happening. So just as an example, I don't work in democracy promotion um, and I don't write on democracy promotion, but I continuously have conversations with people in that community because there's just extraordinary um, details that I learn about how power operates, what the relationship is to specific civil society organizations, what commitments are to political parties, which I find fascinating, even when I take an interpretive approach to, you know, different meanings of democracy and how people are understanding democracy to be. Um, that other approach is as important to my understanding as the kind of daily routine conversations that I've been pushing for. And so really trying to uh, approach it from a multi-directional uh, way and try and really hear both sides of the, of the, of the discussions. And you're right about uh, the COVID and travel restrictions probably um, interfering a bit with that kind of immersive research, but still the way we frame our questions does matter. And I think that right now, certainly as a political scientist, I look at Tunisia and say, hey, some of the theories that we've been applying to Tunisia just don't really seem to be working. And so it is an interesting time for us to take stock and think, how can we do better uh, going forward? Yeah.